Welcome to the Crosscut Festival. My name is Enrique Cerna, Senior Correspondent for Crosscut and KCTS 9. And uh, I'm emceeing uh, all of the panels today on the race and social justice track. Now, let me introduce our uh, panelists and also our moderator. Uh, first up, contributing editor at the New York Times Magazine and Vanity Fair, Vanessa Grigoriadis is the author of Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. In her magazine writing, she has covered pop culture, youth movements, and crime. She is a national magazine award winner and has been featured on MSNBC, CNN, Dateline, and more. She'll, she's also going to be signing her book in the lobby after the panel. So, Vanessa, have a seat. Okay, Go on here. So All right. <laughs> Callie Burt is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Washington. She's not here, but let me finish this anyway, because I already started. Her research has been published in the American Journal of Sociology, American Sociolo Sociological Review, Justice Quarterly and more. And if she joins us, then she'll join us in progress, or not. Thank you. Uh, Katie Cuerna is a, oh, kind of rhymes with Cerna, there we go, uh, is a PhD student at the uh, School of Social Work at the University of Washington. She spent two years on the Washington State HIV Prevention Planning Group and has worked with marginalized individuals and communities at risk for HIV infection. Welcome, good to have you here. Minoj Zie is a second-year Master's of Social Work student specializing in mental health at the University of Washington and is the Director of Sexual Assault and Relationship Violence Activists at the UW. And welcome. Good to have you here. And our moderator, Patricia Murphy, is an award-winning radio journalist for KUOW. Her series, Less Than Honorable, investigated how the military handles more than 3,000 sexual assault cases each year. Welcome to Patricia. And let me uh, just take a minute to thank our sponsors, without whom none of this would be possible, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and our race and social justice track sponsor, Seattle Foundation. And take it away, Patricia. All right. Hey, thank you so much for coming. We have so much to talk about, so we'll just get started. And Vanessa, I think I'm going to start with you. When you were researching okay. your book, what did you learn that was surprising about the role that sex plays on campus and with young people in college? Okay, that is a big question. <laughs> big panel. I will do my best to answer. So, um, so my book was this exploration, right? I'm a, I'm a journalist. Um, I'm not an activist. I went... Uh, kind of full bore on going back to college myself as a Gen Xer, but trying to be part of the conversation among 20-year-olds about sex and sexual assault and seeing what I learned. Um, so I interviewed about 120 students, went all over the country um, and tried to gauge um, how people are thinking about this today and how quickly these social norms are starting to change. So the thing, you know, that I was most surprised by, I would say, is that we have kind of two things going on in this country simultaneously. On one hand, we have a completely masculine-dominated social 
um, structure on campuses. So we have fraternity membership up by 50% in the last decade. Um, we have sports uh, that are, you know, mostly played by guys that students are flocking to in the weekends. You know, we have a kind of video game culture where a lot of girls are sitting around saying, okay, I'll just sit here and kind of hang out while the guys are playing and maybe we'll smoke some pot or we'll do this or that. But, you know, it's still kind of a male-dominated activity. And the colleges really support these kinds of uh, kind of social institutional um, norms that create like, you know, the problem with fraternities is that they're male dominated party spaces where the guys get to control the alcohol. Um, what's in the punch? Sororities, national sororities are not allowed to have parties with alcohol, right? Um, so we've got that all going on on one hand. On the other hand, we have a rise in progressivism like we haven't seen since 1969. We have people really cottoning not only to ideas about social justice that were quite honestly not that cool to talk about 10 years ago. Um, but we also have this kind of new sexual standard and this new understanding of what sexual consent is and that there are some things that are not illegal, but they are indeed unethical. And we have to deal with those in the 18 to 22 year old population because if we don't, we're never going to deal with it. And we're going to have a new generation of Harvey Weinsteins. So this idea of yes means yes, and how do we get consent, and when do we get consent, and this is all really confusing stuff in some ways, but it's also really simple in other ways. Let's just look at each other as human beings. This is about like getting a little more conscious. Um, so I found both of those things on college campuses really in an interplay that was pretty like just kind of shocking and fascinating and, um, you know, kept me busy for two years thinking about it. So, <laughs> yeah. I just want to, thanks, Vanessa. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to add too, like, so Vanessa, we're on a college campus. We're talking about sexual assault and relationship violence. And it is critical to talk about at 18 to 22. It's also critical to, to don't not conceptualize consent as having to do with sex and sexuality, that consent is actually... I mean, firstly, recognizing a historical context of that we are we are on Salish land, we are on Duwamish land, and so the, the the historical and cultural context cannot be forgotten. When we're talking about consent, we're on land that was not given permission for us to be on. So it is critical to not um, to think about these ways in a, in a much more complicated and much more uncomfortable way. And also, so taking consent off of college campuses and and into may lose that are that are within our K twelve education system and that are happening for young people really early. so sharing is a thing anybody who has been around young kids anybody who's been recently you know the holidays just happened like asking kids like why don't you go give Aunt Mary a kiss or being in the grocery store say hi kids don't owe adults anything. Um, and I think it's those kind of little micro situations that it's easy for us to sort of distance ourselves from like, well, I'm not a rapist, so like, I, like I've done my work. I don't need to stress about this. But we actually do these everyday practices all of the time that are reinforcing particular power dynamics. And if we're talking about consent, nobody gets to campus at 18 and say, I'm going to start raping people. We all have a collective responsibility to the ways in which we socialize people into these gendered norms. And for men, 
part of that is this dominance imperative and sexual assault is just one other way in which that manifests. And it also, part of that socialization is also not this recognition that you have like real like feelings and experiences and a, and a body that you can connect to as men that, um, that they're socialized out of the capacity to to being able to connect to people in a way that has intimacy beyond sex and sexuality, that they are, their body is a penis and, and that they, the norm in that is to be having sex with as many women as possible, which in reality, like that's just not true. How do we uh, change the way we teach about sexuality and consent in the K through 12 I think education that's such a, system? Yeah. I think that's such a, it's such an important question, Patricia. And I think it's in, it's really difficult for us as adults because we want to say like, that's for them. Here's these things that we teach kids. And that is what is critical is we actually look at our own socialization around gender and sexuality. I have not met, I've been working in sexual health for my entire professional life and I have not met a person who does not have some kind of stuff around their body, right? So like, it, it farts and we have pus and we vomit and that just like we don't talk about those things so I think it's a real discomfort in the body and desire and what it does and then particularly for for women um, there's there's particular ways that our bodies are supposed to be in the world and as adults we have to actually begin to do some of our own decolonizing work around the hurts and wounds that we have around our gendered socialization and then begin to design curriculum that is that is attendant to what is what is real around sex and sexuality and gender um, and I think those that needs to be intersectional that we can't attend to gender and sexuality without also attending to race and class and all the implications because we can say all day long like when in fact my wonderful uncle wrote me before this panel and he said, well, don't you think that it's just like a really divided place and shouldn't we just teach people like that they should like be kind to respect people? And I was like, if history literally did not happen, that would be a great approach, <laughs> but it's a very ahistorical and acontextual right. approach. And I think it's more uncomfortable to think about the own work that, that we have to do to be able to sit in the discomfort that comes when we talk about gender and sexuality. Yeah. And there are some programs, I mean, there are people often want to know like, well, what's just like the best program? And you know, yeah, there are programs that I think do a really comprehensive job of being able to talk about some really uncomfortable topics. But, um, but it's, it also is it's a function of the adults that are facilitating those things. And we're, it, it's also not asking teachers to figure that out because we ask a too much of teachers already. Manoj, mm -hmm. uh, as a student and an educator, how have you seen the conversation change on campus around consent post Me Too? Did I do this? I think okay. it did. I'm sorry, I'm sick. My, my voice is usually not this bad. Um, um, post Me Too and pre Me, pre -me Too hashtag. Um, <laughs> I think. Here, I'll trade you. Here, I'll trade you. There we go. Can you hear me now? Oh, I can hear me too. Yeah, um, I think the conversation between students have changed. Between the, among the institutional entities, it has not. What's uh, different about students first? I think there's a lot more awareness uh, and there's a lot of uh, understanding of what has happened to them in the past 
that may not have been consensual because it was understood as, uh, we were just talking about it earlier, as a feel bad sex. You know, I, I'll do it because they care for me, uh, they love me, they work so hard all day, so might as well, and then you just feel bad after it. But really there's no, there's no vocabulary for that. And I think we're giving vocabulary to that kind of feeling with the national conversation that's taking place. What is not happening is, on a systemic level, the changes have not been made yet. And I know this is early, although it cannot be early, because it's been happening for so long. Um, systemically, we're not addressing it. There's a lot of conversations between students, and I'm sure it's gonna lead into some kind of a change. However, we're still a macrocosm of the bigger world, which is still patriarchal, still heteronormative, still misogynistic. Uh, so we are, as a university, we're just a microcosm of that. Right. We're not really separate from the world. Um, so not much has changed, yes. And at the same time, there's a lot of conversation happening, which is, which is great, which is fantastic. Uh, there is more awareness. Uh, there are more people willing to learn. Uh, you were just referring to a viral fiction piece, uh, Feel Bad Sex was Cat People. If anybody read that, that was a New Yorker fiction piece where a woman has sex with a guy that she didn't really like very much. It was a little disappointing. Um, if you fast forward to the end, he kind of phone stalks her a little bit and calls her a whore at the end. And that piece went viral because it resonated with so many women, right? We look at those pieces and we look at the Aziz and Grace story and we judge them. Um, is there, does judging help or does it hurt the conversation? I think it helps. I mean, this is like a national conversation that people are having. I mean, I don't think like Twitter firestorms help. Um, I don't think what happened with Aziz Anasari was particularly helpful because it kind of allowed a, a place for, you know, a lot of kind of quasi-feminists to come forward, mostly from like Gen X or boomer um, generations and say, look, that woman in that Aziz Ansari story was, um, she had free will. And she could have left at any time. And for those of you who don't know this story, Aziz, you know, um, a fairly well-known, <laughs> famous comedian. Um, you know, there was a story that was kind of making the rounds in New York. Um, journalists are getting a lot of phone calls from people who want to tell their stories about sexual assault by famous or powerful men. And um, there's more than people can handle. You know, I've been getting calls myself. I work as a journalist. And uh, this story was, to my mind, was a story of sexual assault, but she did not verbalize while the encounter was going on a no, right? She didn't say, I'm uncomfortable, I want to leave, blah, 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 whatever else it was that we would accept. She was giving nonverbal cues, right? And she was kind of... Um, trying to get out of the situation and redirect. And so it became a really contentious story because it was published on a website nobody's heard of called babe.net. It had already made the rounds through many newsrooms in New York where people had said, you know what, I'm not sure I want to go here. I'm not sure I want to, you know, we have to have also an understanding like, look, I'm not a rape apologist, but like it is hard to get out uh, when sexual misconduct is linked with your name, that is serious. That is a reputational 
thing that is going to stick to Aziz. Now, in this case, I think it should stick to him. But, you know, people take it seriously and whatever. People had kind of looked at it. Journalists had looked at it and said, I'm not sure we want to do this story. And it was ultimately published. And it was very hurtful to the Me Too movement, to my mind, because it did allow a lot of people to come forward and say, this is not the standard of consent I accept. And this woman is pretending to be a victim. And thereby, you know, because we live in such a victim-blaming culture that you only need one person to quote-unquote misstep, one victim to quote-unquote lie or misstep, that everybody starts blaming that person. You know, we saw this really with college sexual assault a few years ago when Rolling Stone ran their story about UVA, and they hadn't done a good job fact-checking it, and it came out that that story was, you know... Perhaps something had happened to that woman, but certainly not what she had told the reporter. And America loves a good rape story, but they really love a story about a woman lying about rape. That is something that people can really grab onto and say, oh, I want to really raise my fist about that. So, you know, this is super complex because I think, yes, judgment's hard. Obviously, these are people's personal sexual experiences. Are we going to sit here and judge who was assaulted and who wasn't? You know, that that's crazy. Yet at the same time, if we want the social norm to change, we must kind of have open discussion, respectful, hopefully, discussion. Start talking about things like K through 12, consent. Let's teach not only this is a disgusting STD and put a picture up and this is a condom that you put on the banana, but let's talk about, like, what are your sexual boundaries? And, you know, the idea you said before of, like, you don't have to let your aunt or your grandma, you know, kiss you if you don't want to be kissed. Like, that is your body. You know, we're trying to teach people, like, these are your bodies. And people need permission, you know, to touch your body. I really, truly believe that that is a, a new social norm that we're going to see roll out across the country. I think it's going to be hard as a criminal thing, you know. But I think as a, as a way of treating each other. Um, respectfully, this idea of you need permission to touch me. Um, and also let's like definitely say like with all this workplace sexual harassment stuff, it just is completely logical to say if you have a crush on your coworker, you should just say like, hey, are you into this before you go move in for a kiss with this person, you know? You just never really know. It's just better for everybody to be on the same page. And also, a lot of people don't say no when they really want to. But they would not say yes if they were asked, you know? So can I comment on that, Patricia? Okay. Um, so I think it's both... I think the Aziz Ansari and the cat person story are both, both useful and not useful. I think they are useful to... Um, largely useful. They are useful to the extent that when the hashtag me too movement first started it was very easy to other people which i think is actually the most dangerous thing that any of us can do so to say like i'm so glad i'm a good person over here there's the bad people over there there's harvey weinstein over there i'm so glad i am a good person i i follow tanahisi coats on twitter i've done my work right and that is a dangerous place to be because it absolves the rest of us of the collective responsibility of undoing sexism and aziz is is um, 
it's there's a lot of discomfort that comes when being when you sit in the ambiguity of like like Harvey gave a bunch of money to Planned Parenthood, right? Like we need to be able to sit in the discomfort that comes with the kind of paradox that is like, wait a minute, Aziz wrote this great book that maybe a lot of people in the room really liked, and also he did this thing, and so we have to be able to sit with the complexity like we are actually all of these things right that that i am a really good person and i also benefit from white privilege or i am a really good person and i benefit every day from sexism and that's an incredibly uncomfortable paradox to sit in and so i think the cat person story and aziz gets closer to our our real world experiences and the much more nuanced conversations that we need to have more of because it is just far too easy to judge like the Harveys and the Bill Cosbys and not actually look at our own behaviors. And I also think that, um, I also think that it's very useful and actually critical to just sit in like what, it is like to live in a world that is inequitable and benefits certain people and, and actually cellularly is diminishing and harmful to men as well, that we are actually empathetic beings and we are not intended to be in a position of dominance over other people. And I think both the cat person story and I think the response is also really useful to learn from. And part of that is whether she did, this is why it's not useful. Talking about the semantics of what she did and what I would have done is, is not useful and actually keeps us in this minutia of infighting rather than looking at the gendered social norms that exist for women and for men and for her in that situation that actually women are taught to be uncomfortable and it is their job to keep other people comfortable all of the time. And that is like such an important and critical part of the cat person story and Aziz Ansari. Um, is that you can't like take this discrete situation out and be like what what she should have or should not have done without recognizing the cultural and social context that those stories are happening in. Okay, I was just going to go back to the judgment. Is yeah. it okay to judge or should we judge at all? And I want to add to both of their points. Um, I think it's okay to judge if your judgment leads to an action that's constructive. If you're, and that's, of course, based on each person, but if you're judging for the sake of patting yourself on the back and making yourself feel better, then maybe not. It's not useful. But if your judgment comes from a place of anger, from a place of discomfort, saying, this is not okay, I need to do something about it, then yes, absolutely, you should. Uh, and also, I think I was going to go back to the point of how we, you know, how we allow... Uh, the gender norms from early childhood and education, and I think it depends on how the family dynamics are played out, because we talked about it early on. Children learn by modeling behavior. If the parents model a behavior, a dynamic where there's equity between parents, then the child grows up to have that. If the child does not grow up, there's, that's why we have a lot of students coming in at 18 not knowing what consent is. They never saw it. Are universities doing enough to educate students about consent? What's missing from that conversation at the institutional level? Are they doing anything? Oh, well, they're, they're doing a lot of panels. 
which is good. Which is which is great. They're doing that. That's good. It's good. It's, we should be doing that. This wasn't happening. Uh, I'm just sarcastic. I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, they're doing. So they're do, doing a lot more uh, talking and gathering information. And we at, at our organization, we're trying to understand the the patterns of sexual assault on campus. Where is it happening? Who is it committed by mostly? Where is it happening the most? You know, is it a Greek system? Is it the housing? Is, where is it? So we are trying to see those patterns and once we find out more, we can address it. Institutionally, unfortunately, no. We only have um, two victim advocates for the entire UW University student population. Two victim advocates and that's because we don't have the funding. It's interesting because parents, of course, are the funding of institutions for the most part. If you're paying a full ride for your, for your student to go to the University of Washington or Seattle University, you might expect a little bit more in terms of... You absolutely should expect yeah. more. You should demand more. It's your right. You're paying for it. I mean, education, unfortunately, is not free in America. And if it's not free, then the customer is always right, right? So, yes, they should demand that. And that's not happening because on an institutional level, we have not reached where we should be. Do you think they're still in a bunker mentality at colleges about, you know, this is about protection because of course no parent wants to be afraid that their daughter or son is going to be involved in a sexual assault when they get to school? Yes, of course. And also universities are institutions that have reputations that need to protect. A lot of uh, prevention methods first focus on how to prevent the university, then how to prevent the student. And that's a fact. Uh, because the university status matters, Ad admissions matter, enrollment matters, money matters. So all those things contribute to the university's, you know, status. And if, if the student, if the university has the status of, well, this is a sexual assault hub, nobody wants to go there. So the first thing that student, a university does is to protect that, not the student. And that's why a lot of students, when they go through the whole Title IX process or uh, sexual assault resources, they become disappointed because they don't get to feel like they're being heard. It's the university trying to protect itself first, and I think that's a problem. Yeah. Vanessa, a lot of alcohol, mm -hmm. experimentation, mm -hmm. drugs happening on college campuses. People are away from home for the first mm -hmm. time. They're kind of in this weird, like, still on, you know, mom and dad's dime, right. but you yeah. know, free, free to experiment. How does that play into sexual assault and communication between students? Well, I mean, first of all, we all know that there's a red zone right at the beginning of school. So there's a time, those first few weeks of school, where um, students are particularly vulnerable, you know, um, particularly like in the Greek system, where like guys who are coming back in early August to just like hang out at the frat house when freshman orientation is going on. I'm not saying that they're not there for like soccer practice or whatever, but there's also going to be some percentage of those frat members who are going to be like, I think I'm going to go back during that orientation because that's where I am going to meet these girls. And that is just, I think, really, again, like the colleges need to look at the policies that they themselves are fostering by not wanting to pay for, you know, social life or entertainment for their students and kind of outsourcing it and saying, all right, you know, these girls, they can walk into this really pretty much the most dangerous situation that there is, which is somebody who's just away from school for the first time, who 
doesn't have a social cohort, right? Because we know social cohorts are protective against sexual assault. There's a lot of debate, you know, at a place like Harvard that is shutting down its frats and its final clubs are also shutting down the sororities. And there's been a lot of debate about that because, you know, our sororities in some way can be protective against sexual assault. The more social capital you have, the more clubs you're part of or a sports team or whatever it is where you know people you know, the predators will not look at you as a person who can, you know, who, who, who other people won't protect, basically. Um, but I think the, you know, the binge drinking problem on college campuses is one that was kind of in the news a decade ago, and now people are not talking about it anymore, but the numbers are just as high. And also for women, they're just, they're higher than they have ever been. You know, and it's really a third rail of this problem because the last thing anybody wants to do is victim blame and say, don't drink, right? Or you can't handle it, little girl, you know? But at the same time, we want girls to feel, you know, that they have some degree of control over the situation. So I really advocate for uh, self-defense, which is not always part of, you know, kind of early orientation, sexual assault, anti, you know, anti-sexual violence um, programming. We've focused a lot on bystander education in this country, which I think has been really good for attitude shift. But, you know, I really like these, there's program in Canada that has really, really good results off of like empowerment self-defense. So it's not only like you learn how to do the wrist hold or whatever, but you learn how to recognize the signs of somebody who might be an assaulter and remove yourself from the situation before it happens. And the woman who's teaching it has a lot of data to show, like, if this is a guy who tries to control the date or interrupts women a lot or always insists on paying, or just makes weird, perverted sexual jokes at times when the situation is not sexual. There is no reason to think that that person is gonna be respectful in the bedroom. You might, it might be the easiest thing to figure out. You might be like, oh, wow, here, here's the one, you know? But also just to recognize the signs early, like when you go to the party and it's 2 a.m. and some guy says, oh, I have beer at my house over here off campus. Like, you should come. Like, you should come. We can tell your friends to come too, but, like, why don't you just come with me right now? You know, as, okay, maybe you might go if you're 18 and you're just, you know, like, naive. But, like, once you get there, how do you recognize the signs to try to remove yourself from the situation? Because once you're in the situation, we have a lot of data showing that, you know, the play nice female thing of, oh, no, no, push away, you know, playfully I'm trying not to rock the boat, blah, 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 doesn't, doesn't end up in a good place. And, you know, that's, there's, <laughs> you can't change somebody's psychology to say that they're suddenly going to scream no, you know, and run out of the apartment. Like, we just know that's not happening. So, um, so I, I like, you know, and she also has a program, part of her program that's about healthy sexuality and about women thinking in a vacuum, 
Before it's like you're in the situation with the guy and he's pressuring you to have a certain kind of sex and you think like, oh, maybe I'm a prude if I don't do it or do other girls do this or I guess I'll do it because I want to please him. Think on your own. Like, what would I do? Would I do this? Would I have, you know, this kind of sex with somebody who wasn't my husband, with a one-night stand, only with a committed partner? So she has them kind of like make this whole kind of flow chart and really found like later on that it helps people like that clarifying act of thinking abstractly about desire and what you truly desire has like a clarifying effect on the later situation and people not being as um, kind of like, oh, go with the flow kind of, you know, thing or I'm afraid to say no. You know, that's that she's she's anyway. So she's she's now got a pilot program at Stanford and um, her name's Charlene Sen, S-E-N-N, if you guys want to read more about that program. So I'm hoping that's going to come, like, to the U.S., basically. It sounds like developing a sexual intelligence about Sexual yourself. intelligence plus some physical, you know, self-defense moves just so you have that in your toolkit, basically. Sure. Yeah. Can I? Oh, go ahead, Manoj. Mm-hmm. You sure? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'll get my words in. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wanted to add on to that, too. Please. And I, I feel like one of the things that we are not doing is when we do prevention methods, um, the prevention should not, methods should not focus on potential victims. How to not get raped should not be the way we're going. You know, it's, it's about potential perpetrators. And every, every time I think about it, I think about when somebody tells me, well, when you're walking along, carry a whistle or something. And I think about, okay, what if I reverse this and said to a, a person who was a perpetrator saying, when you're thinking about raping somebody, blow a whistle so somebody can come and help you and stop you. <laughs> flip the script. Yeah, like flip yeah. the script and see how that sounds, right. you know? Like it sounds ridiculous, but like imagine all those things, right? Like, oh, carry a buddy so they can stop you from raping somebody. Mm-hmm. But all these prevention methods for, for us, they are, they are just they are suggestions, carry a buddy, car- carry a whistle, do this, do that. Like, well, that's not helping me. You're just telling me how to not get raped so somebody else can. That's basically what it's saying. And that's, that is not yeah. helpful. Prevention methods should be towards perpetrators. How do you not rape somebody? And I th- that's useful, Minosh. And, and also, I think that focusing on the individual level is actually like tip of the iceberg. So I want to focus this back on some of the institutional structures that perpetuate these kinds of norms. There's a great book, by the way, that was relatively recent um, called American Hookup by Lisa Wade. And she talks a lot about the the kinds of policies that happen, I mean, actually some transportation policies specifically that happened in the 80s, where we said, you need to be 21 to drink. And we'd already had these, these ideas about college post Animal House of college is fun. This is where you go to have fun. And it behooves the institution to continue to perpetuate an idea that they're fun, right? Like, we get that, that's fine. Yeah. So if you say college is supposed to be fun, and by the way, the only people that have control of alcohol, which is totally ubiquitous, is by going to fraternity houses. And so it, I'm, I'm not trying to be a hater on fraternities, but the empirics suggest that most sexual assaults happen either in fraternities or related to fraternal organizations, or if nothing after, else... After the frat party. Right. Right. Yeah. And if nothing else related to groups of men who, so athletes, fraternity members, ROTC, even like the trumpet section in the band, right? And those are also the men that are uniquely positioned to do some of the individual prevention and response that we spend a lot of our energies talking about and not talking about how the institution perpetuates um, 
perpetuates these. So, so we are the most well-resourced university in the state at the University of Washington, right? So people are asking us, a lot of people, about what this looks like post-DeVos guidance. At the University of Washington and the city of Seattle, like, we're gonna be fine, right? Because we have these particular commitments as a city, we are incredibly well-resourced as a school, and by well-resourced, I mean well-funded, Cleary, right, different conversation, but well-funded with a, an elite body of students and with a, within a liberal enclave, right? So we're probably not gonna feel, even though we do not have enough advocates, right? Like, but this is the most well-resourced school that does not have a lot of advocates. This is gonna be disproportionately impactful. These guidelines are gonna be disproportionately impactful to schools that are far less resourced than the University of Washington, and that's critical. I also think we don't talk about, this is not sexy to talk about these things, pardon the pun, but to be thinking about doing audits of existing programs and policies, and what do those things look like when somebody reports, when somebody's an undergraduate and reports, when somebody's a graduate student, when somebody is a staff member, what is the adjudication process? and and not equivocating, so DeVos's guidance suggests that all students involved in the accused and the accuser need to have the same resources. Typically, um, some of the things that will happen to somebody who has been accused of sexual assault is you might, get a, you might have to write an essay, you might have to go um, volunteer at a rape crisis center. That is, that is qualitatively different than having experienced a sexual assault. So, those are the policies that are existent that, that schools need to be saying to themselves, like, we're, we're taking this seriously, and that means doing this existent audit of the prevention and response programming, and that is gonna be totally context-dependent, but depending on where you are in, a st in the state, if you're a private institution or not. And it's, that's the kind of money that allows us to have the data, and by the way, data that is flawed because there's a whole bunch of reasons why people don't report sexual assaults. Um, and then, the only way that we're going to, typically programming happens at a orientation, an hour of orientation at the beginning of your freshman year. That is not useful. I do not remember any part of the first <laughs> several semesters of my freshman year, and not because I was drunk the whole time, right? And so we know that the best prevention programming, which is not not really great, to be honest. It is really in its nascency, is bystander programs, and programs that are happening throughout the year with a high level of frequency, and that institutions themselves, so the university president is talking about the importance of these programs, and they're actually putting material resources towards them beyond just being like, probably shouldn't rate people, and not also sort of disaggregating um, where, where these structures come from. I also wanna say if you're like, we should get rid of frats. Um, Fraternity members generally are the highest donors to an institution, and also the Greek system houses a number of students. So particularly in a city like Seattle where there is a high cost of living, the institution relies heavily on their Greek system to house students um, and also for alumni donorship. This is, the, the university is good and bad and all of these things, right? But it is deeply enmeshed within the Greek system. So some smaller institutions have tried to abolish their Greek systems or integrate them as multi-gender or um, get rid of their houses with some success. There, there is pretty, it's pretty compelling to think about the connections between all male 
organizations and um, perpetrating sexual assault and violence of lots of different kinds. We've got about three minutes left. Vanessa, I'm gonna to toss you the last mm -hmm. question, which is how do we move from this place of heat to a place of light? Where is the conversation, where does it need to go and, and how will we get there? Okay. <laughs> you got <laughs> three minutes? minutes? Go. <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, I, Look, I, I, you know, I don't want to be overly optimistic, okay? Things can, can shift back in culture in, in a moment. You know, we know that culture always shifts. We know that in the early 90s, we had a kind of movement around sexual assault that, that was oriented towards carry your mace and take back the night and was very kind of female, uh, you know, female responsibility dominant that um, petered out. And that, like, by 1993, like, Saturday Night Live was making fun of it and saying, like, ooh, asking for consent, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So, you know, it's totally possible that the media will get really sick of this topic um, and people will, you know, decide that Ivanka Trump is, you know, a heroine and, and all sorts of things will, will change in our country. But we are not there yet. We still have a long way to go. And what I really see happening is this shift in attitudes and in social norms. It's true that changing behavior is hard. It is true that we are not seeing through these prevention programs a lot of shift in, in perpetration. Like, nobody can figure this out. How are we shifting the perpetration? This should be going down. But you know what? That always lags behind the social norm shifts. And everybody in this room has to know that as many people as you may encounter in your families who say, oh my God, this is ridiculous. What are these girls even talking about? That there are other people that you've talked to whose eyes are being opened to this issue right now in a way that they weren't before. That they're saying like, okay, wait a second. You know, my friend who, who is a woman, she shared with me this story of her sexual assault. And you know what? I really... I, I, feel, I feel different about this now. And I, I know it's hard to say that because it's like women's work to change the situation, blah, 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 blah. And, and, you know, there is some truth to that. But people, the way that women are bravely coming forward, sharing their stories publicly with their real names, right? In the 90s, you were like, you know, Callie C from you know, the University of Washington shares her story with a reporter and it's like a black, you know, blacked out like silhouette. I mean, people coming forward, the icons of Hollywood coming forward, the gymnasts coming forward. I mean, this is a big, big moment. And let's try to like, just say like, wow, okay, let's get behind it. Let's move it forward. Let's think positive, you know? And that's, I mean, I'm hopeful, basically. <laughs> I think uh, a recent tweet that I saw about a, a forgiveness that happened between two people, it was the mm -hmm. showrunner guy from um, Rick and Dan Morty. Dan Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So he was badly treating a woman. Uh, he was obsessed with her. I think that mm -hmm. was the whole thing. And he made a podcast, and he basically apologized to her, and she forgave him publicly. And I think the best quote that I read out of their dialogue was that connection breeds empathy, and empathy allows for growth. So maybe that's where we need to head to move mm -hmm. past Me Too and mm -hmm. move into what's next. Thank you very much to all our panelists. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our audience.